Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. And I'm delighted this week to be joined by Father Dan Grudy, who is a Holy Cross priest, Vice President and Associate Provost here at the University. He's also a Fellow and Trustee and Associate Professor of Theology and Global Affairs. I think I got all those, <laughs> all those right. So thanks, Father Dan, for being here with us. Thank you, Dan. Besides all the roles that you fill at the university, would you just give us a sense of your own background? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in a family of five, and we, I was born in Philadelphia, and I grew up on the East Coast. So for the most part, we grew up in Connecticut and New Jersey. And my dad worked for the phone company, and so we were moved around a lot. Mm. So I kind of was used to being a new kid in town yeah. for a better part of my schooling years. And so as we changed different places, I learned a lot about you know, living in different settings and, and uh, growing up in different spaces. So I think it was our family that kind of uh, always was with us. And in some sense, it was a set of relationships that became home for me. And it was through that that eventually I grew up in my own faith. And then that journey led me here to Notre Dame eventually. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, the practice of faith on on the way of moving and encountering different parishes and a little, little different styles of the liturgy. What sustained you in your faith during some of those transitions? Yeah, so I never probably would have put it this way when I was growing up, mm-hmm. but I think in some ways I grew up in a family of corporate migrants, okay. <laughs> and that is that we migrated from place to place. And I think that experience of being a new kid has uh, shaped me in some ways because I knew what it was like to be on the outside. I also knew it was like to be welcomed by people. I knew it was like to have people make fun of you growing up. Mm -hmm. I also knew what it was like for people to really treat you as a friend. And all that shaped me. I think the the difficult and positive really shaped me. And so I kind of developed a sensitivity to people who are on the margins and on the outside. And eventually that actually got me into my own research, I think, in areas of interest. Mm -hmm. One of those really was which led me down to to Latin America as an exchange student. So one of my bigger migrations in high school was to be an exchange student in Argentina and Uruguay. Oh, wow. So that shaped me a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Could you give us a sense of what that was like as a high schooler going that far away from home? I was pretty naive going into Latin America. I I didn't really know that much where I was going. Uh, This is a program called the American Field Service, AFS. And you basically said what were some countries you didn't want to go to and what were areas of the world that you definitely wanted to go to. And so I said Europe or South America, and most people wanted to go to Europe, so eventually they, they sent me down to South America. When they told me I was going to Uruguay, I honestly didn't know where it was. Yeah. But it was a long way from home, and it was an opposite season, and I lived with the host family there that welcomed me into a strange world, and it was there that I had to learn the language, the culture, the history, the systems, the values. But surprisingly, it was also under a military dictatorship. And so the family that I live with and their extended family in Argentina had a son who was a disappeared member of the family. So literally, they they had been taken away by the military. And like many of these thousands of young people, they were put in cement boots, dropped out in the middle of the ocean. They never heard from again. So the injustice of that made a deep impression on me. Absolutely. And so there were three things that really struck me at that time. One was that injustice, and I knew my life. I wanted in some ways to be connected to responding to the world's injustice. Secondly, because I couldn't learn the language or I didn't know the language, I went through periods of real loneliness there, and I got tired of talking to myself. So it's there (laughs) that I began to talk to God. Yeah. 
and that desire to talk to God led me to want to come to a place to explore my faith. And so afterwards, I came to to Notre Dame because I wanted to know something about the faith I'd grown up on, even though I'd gone to public schools up until then. Sure. So we can jump to that then, your decision to come to Notre Dame. What was your knowledge of Notre Dame before coming and then your experience once you were here as a student? Well, to be honest, I wanted to go to Dartmouth initially. Um, I eventually ended up, Notre Dame was my first choice eventually, but I, at first I was a skier and I loved uh. racing and I was a downhill skier for many years. And so my dream was to to race. Uh-huh. My dream was to ski. <laughs> Not as much exciting skiing territory out here <laughs> in so South Bend. <laughs> Dartmouth had a great ski team and it was a great school and so I thought that's where I wanted to go. Sure. But then I came out of here my junior year and my second uncle Billy McMurtry is the one who introduced me to the Notre Dame and I think coming to a football game and spending a weekend here and also staying in one of the dorms during that weekend won me over mm-hmm. and from that point on I knew where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. Did you have any knowledge of Holy Cross before you came here, or was that something that you encountered once you were a student? No, I had no idea who Holy Cross was, and I didn't think about being a priest at that time. I might have thought it a few times in high school, but when I came here, I thought I'd work in international business or law, and that's really where I thought my journey would take me. But in many ways, so many of the things I've done and been doing are so different from what I thought I would do. <laughs> it's nothing that I expected to do, but right. it's more than anything I wanted to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So once you graduated from here, what were your plans at that time, and then how did that God shape that into what became your vocation? Yeah, so I actually thought that I would go into law, business, but eventually I think towards the middle of my time here, I really started thinking about being a priest. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was dating someone who I love very much, yeah. and you know, I thought about also being married and having a family. So I thought that it could, would take place uh, along those conventional lines. But my experience of faith here, and also the experience of the Holy Cross priests, and my deepening sense of really what is it that I want to live out in my life, pressed on me much more deeply than I ever expected them to do. Mm-hmm. I, I'll be honest, when I was in high school, I read sort of Thoreau, and I read some of the classics of literature and stuff, and I they, they just didn't have a deep impact. They kind of passed right over my head, and I didn't really understand them, and yeah. I didn't really appreciate the profound questions. Uruguay humanized me, opened up new worlds to me, made me kind of responsive to much deeper questions. So when I came here to, to Notre Dame, even though I wanted to, to study law, I ended up going into the PLS program, the Great Books program sure. here, the program of liberal studies. And that really taught me how to ask questions. And one of those questions was, what does a life worth living look like? Yeah. And that opened up spaces for, for vocation, which led me into the seminary. Mm-hmm. So did you enter the seminary right after Notre Dame? Right after I graduated. Okay. And then that led to some graduate studies prior to being a priest. So what were your graduate studies like? And then in that time, I suppose you were also deciding about religious life as well. So could you give us some sense of those things? Yeah, so finally in my senior year, I knew this was a question that I would not be at peace with unless I really honestly was open to it. Mm -hmm. So while it's not where I thought I would start, you know, I knew that I had to pay attention to this question. And so I took a long walk across the lake, started talking to the vocation director, and sort of to my surprise, the deeper I got into it, the more it kind of felt more aligned with what I wanted to do. But that took time. Yeah. So I graduated. I spent a year on campus at Moreau Seminary, and it was called our candidate year back then. Mm-hmm. 
Then our second year was to go to Colorado Springs and to be in our novitiate, which is really a year up on the mountains, sure. to really uh, enter more deeply into a life of prayer and community life. And it's also a chance to work with people in a local setting, ministry setting, so I work with heart attack patients and cancer patients. And then after that year, and when I took first vows, I went out to Berkeley, California, where I began my Master's of Divinity Studies. In the middle of that, I went down to Chile and Peru and did more studies down there. I came back, finished up my, my MDiv, and then went into a parish for three years. I worked in a Hispanic parish, and then I went on to doctoral studies after that for another five years and studied spirituality. Great. That experience of being in Colorado at the novitiate, from what I understand, is pretty intense and a different, a different experience than most people are used to. What about that time was really vital to your future as a Holy Cross religious and as a priest, especially as you kind of got into that active ministry? If you talk to a number of Holy Cross priests, you'll hear a lot of responses and a range of responses to how people encounter their novitiate. I actually love my novitiate, mm -hmm. and there's a part of me that's really a monk, yeah. and so I really liked having a time where I could come away to go into a deeper reflection and deeper life of prayer, something that an active life in Holy Cross is you have to really fight for, mm -hmm. although it's still something that's really important in my yeah. daily activities. But it's easy to get kind of wrapped up into busyness, mm -hmm. and this is a chance where you disengage from that, and you really have to confront and deal with your inner life. Mm -hmm. And so I found that to be liberating, even even though it's difficult, it's not easy to go into that space. But that actually became a very cherished space for me, and that the inner journey became very important to me, even though eventually my research area became very focused also on the outer journey mm -hmm. with migrants and refugees. Mm -hmm. So you've mentioned a couple of times your research and, and field of study. Was that part of the reason why you went out to California to, to continue on in your studies? What went into that decision? So I was between two places. One was to go back to Berkeley and to study there, and the other would be to go to Rome and study there. Mm -hmm. And there was another Holy Cross priest who was a mentor of mine, Father Bill Lures, and he was dying of cancer. And so in the end, the programs were similar, though different. I mm -hmm. think there were pluses and minuses to both programs. But I also wanted to help Bill die. And mm -hmm. I knew that if I was in the country, I'd have more proximity to him and be able to accompany him mm -hmm. in his final years, which eventually is what happened. Yeah. So it was important to me as a member of Holy Cross, but also just having dear friends in the community who had mentored me and people who had shaped and formed my, my life of faith and had been just great companions in the Lord, you know, to really be with him till the end. And so, so I, that was the right decision for mm -hmm. me. But I also, going to California, what I really wanted to study was the spirituality of Latinos. Mm -hmm. and so my experience in Latin America, as well as my experience in the parishes, and my own interest in spirituality led me to really want to study the spirituality of Latinos. But as I got more deeply into the spirituality of Latinos, many of them were immigrants. Mm -hmm. So what was originally a study of Latinos became a study of immigration. Now, at the same time, I was going back and forth between migrant camps in Southern California and academic context in Northern California. So I learned very quickly that the migrants that I was with didn't care that I know. <laughs> they just want to know that I cared. Yeah. Whereas the people in Northern California in academic studies didn't care that I cared. They just cared that I know. Yeah. I was really often in between these two worlds, between the grassroots and the academy. And so it's often like, how do you bring these worlds together? But in time, I realized that that's where my strength was, was to actually be on the border. Mm -hmm. And so I became something of a border theologian, mm -hmm. which is to be in between worlds and to try to ask the questions, how do we think 
about God uh, from these contexts. Yeah, that sometimes in, in any aspect of our life we can become siloed from the other in, in any number of ways, and yet it seems like you were feeling this tension but also this call to, to bridge the two sides, to be in conversation with one another, that the experience of migrants at the border could inform and should inform <laughs> academic uh, theology about this, but there's a lot that theology has to say about the dignity and worth of, of people in, in difficult situations. Precisely, and that, that eventually became my area of research, although initially I wanted to stay in these contexts. I, I think you could still send me back to these contexts today, and I'd be very happy. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved being in these spaces. I loved the people that I was with. I learned a lot from them, their faith, their sincerity, their devotion, their struggles, their ability to believe amidst unbelievable settings, to trust even amidst really seemingly godless contexts, to really praise God and be generous even amidst amazing adversity. It, to me, was inspiring. So mm-hmm. really, I fell in love with the people and wanted to be a part of their lives. And so I just begged to, to stay down there. And through a series of events, I was asked to come back here. And so it wasn't really, really expected to come back and be on faculty. And I often wondered where this research fit in with conventional theological research. And, and in many ways, it didn't. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it created a, an opportunity to explore those themes in more detail, and that ended up becoming the research that I did Mm -hmm. as a faculty member. Mm -hmm. Now, when in this whole timeline are you taking final vows and actually being ordained a priest, and could you give us some insight into those two experiences? So when I graduated, you begin a process in formation, initial formation it's called, you're always in formation, Uh, but initial formation lasts uh, six to seven years. And so it was a year of candidacy, uh, it was a year of novitiate, it was three years of uh, Master's of Divinity Theological Studies. Now it's four. And then it was a, a year and a half in uh, Chile, and uh, uh, called a Regency year. Then it's a year of diaconate. So all told, it's about six or seven years from the time you begin formation after college to the time you become ordained. Then I was three years in the parish, and then after that I began doctoral studies. Okay. So because we're educators, we spend a lot of time in studies, but there are other religious communities that you know may not be as sort of geared that way. The mm-hmm. Jesuits certainly are, mm-hmm. but the Franciscans aren't, mm-hmm. and other communities aren't. So I went back and forth in my discernment about whether Holy Cross was the right community. Yeah, sure. But eventually I discovered really that I do love education and I love the learning that happened here at Notre Dame and I also love the priest and the other faculty members that I met here and that gave me a love for learning. And so it, it, becoming an educator in the faith became a very important part of my own vocation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. didn't start there, but I discovered it. Yeah, life. yeah, that's a wonderful. There's an unfolding that happens, sometimes surprises along the way. And what about this aspect of, of being a priest? What has been fulfilling about your priesthood in the midst of all these other things that you've been doing? Yeah, I'm more happy as a Holy Cross priest now than ever before. Mm-hmm. And the grace has never been kind of stronger, but the crosses have never been heavier. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and, and yet it wasn't something that I started with. Again, I, I had to grow into this gradually. There are some people that kind of it makes sense right from the start. Um, mm-hmm. I never expected to be a priest and yet, as I said before, it's nothing I ever thought I would do, but now it's everything that I've always wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's only by God's grace that I think I discovered it mm-hmm. and continue to discover it, and I thank God every day for it. So, Yeah, I think there's some things in God's eternal perspective <laughs> that are beyond our understanding at certain times, but in our temporal life we can, 
we can grow into knowledge and love of those things. And things looking back seem to make more sense than they might have in the midst of experiencing them. But it's been a great schooling along the way. I still teach, and one of the courses I teach really helps students kind of work through some of those very important themes of discernment that mm-hmm. I think were ones I discovered along the way. Mm-hmm. And I'm teaching the class that, frankly, I wish I would have had them when I was a senior. <laughs> yeah. The portion of your vocation where you are teaching students, what is life-giving and possibly challenging about aspects of, of teaching students? Well, it was often quoted that you know Basil Moreau was a person who emphasized that we have to educate the mind and the heart. The heart's always been very important to me. I think discovering the core of what our heart is and what it really says and how it speaks to us. A good friend of mine used to say that you know there was no, there's no church dedicated to the sacred brain of Jesus, hmm. but there is one <laughs> dedicated to the sacred heart of Jesus. I like that. <laughs> and that's because you know really the heart is the center of the person, and from a biblical perspective, the heart is not just the center of emotion; it's actually the center of deepest knowing. And mm-hmm. so, all of our thoughts, our reasoning, our desires, our longings, our aspirations, really are centered in the heart. And it's probably why I feel so at home within Latino context because they actually readily more get that. Mm-hmm. Our kind of great strength in Western kind of the U.S. is really the rationality is, mm-hmm. is kind of systematic reasoning, empirical data, analytical thought. These are all important elements of knowing and ways of knowing but they're not the deepest form of knowing. And so I've always been interested in the heart. In fact, I consider myself more of a cardiologist. Mm. And so I teach a course called The Heart's Desire and Social Mm -hmm. Change. So it tries to ask students, how do you connect with making the link between the deepest desires of your heart and then the call to respond to the needs and challenges of the world? Mm -hmm. So it's basically, it connects with inner development, but also works with outer development. I'm doing this at the undergraduate level with juniors and seniors mostly, and I'm also dealing with it in our Inspired Leadership Initiative in part of the Keough School, but it's also people who have had an established career. They come back here for a year, and then they try to ask, what's the meaning of my life now that I've had a career? So it's really almost uh, both bookends of life, you know, in terms of the beginning of the formal higher education, but also kind of the, the long learning, you know, that that we go through, you know, towards the end of our lives. And so I try to deal with the deeper questions that uh, face all generations. And mm-hmm. so we ask, who am I? What is my identity? Where do I find meaning? What is my mission? You know, what really matters in the end? Where do I need to be forgiven? Who do I need to forgive? Mm-hmm. Looking at those questions. And uh, But it's been a, a great adventure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I can see why that's so useful in both of those periods of life where there's a, a significant moment of discernment. We've had a few... Well, both graduating students, but also Inspire Leadership Initiative folks on the podcast previously, and it's a great, a great conversation as they think through some of those big questions. I would like to discuss the insights that you have discovered in your research, but also just your experience of human beings in migration. What are some of the important elements of the motives of human migration and also the realities that people in migration face in a modern context. So a number of years ago, and actually 2000, there was a press conference on the front lawn of the White House. And at that point, President Clinton had announced that they had deciphered the DNA sequence and that Francis Collins, one of the leading scientists of this, had basically said that we really discovered a genetic map of the, of the human genome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was a moment of great significance and actually a significant 
implications as well. And the outgrowth of this research pointed to a project that National Geographic and since other groups have done. But basically, they uh, through DNA research, they can actually trace back your migration heritage up huh. to 80,000 years. Yeah. So I did this, actually. I, I you know, threw a cotton swab. You know, and sending it into the lab, they gave me a readout of where my ancestors have come from over the last 80,000 years. Mm -hmm. So rather remarkable when you look at this map because you really see that every one of us has migrated, our ancestors have migrated from a certain place. So migration is in our genes. Yeah. And I think it's important to know that as you kind of lift yourself and transcend a bit kind of all the policies that are, go on nationally and internationally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So migration's in our biological genes. It's in our in our national genes, and uh, it's also in our spiritual genes. And if you actually look at the Bible, you really see from beginning to end, migration runs through it, from the expulsion of Adam and Eve to kind of the call of Abraham to Exodus to exile to the return to Jesus' coming to earth as, if you will, divine migrant, mm -hmm. to discipleship, to the mission of the early church, to the final chapters of Revelation, where John from Patmos, who's in exile, speaks about the New Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and he speaks about our own life in this world as a migration, that we're migrating, you know, really ultimately to our eternal homeland and our divine citizenship. Uh, so migration runs through the core of who we are, um, and it's not just a political issue, it's actually a theological and a spiritual issue as well. So my work has really tried to look at the spiritual and theological dimensions of migration and looking at the pastoral response to migrants around the world, the spirituality of migrants, and the theology of migration. Mm -hmm. I know that in your past research and, and publication, you've made connections between migration and the Eucharist. Can you give us a sense of the connections that you found there? There are two main stories for me that have shaped my consciousness about this. One was 20 years ago, I was asked to come down to the border and be part of a mass that the bishops were actually doing on both sides of the border. Yeah. So it's actually a binational mass, mm -hmm. and half the communities in Mexico and half the communities at the United States, yeah. and they join the altar together at the wall. Yeah. And so they celebrate one Eucharist with the bishops on both sides, one Eucharist, one mass in the midst of this wall, yeah. and in the midst of this divided political reality. So the question really is, what does it mean to think about who we are in united in Christ amidst this divided political reality. That's one piece. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The second is uh, Pope Francis, after he was made pope, he had heard a story about three months into his pontificate about a group of refugees who had come from the African coast and had come across the, the waters of the Mediterranean and their boat capsized. Mm -hmm. These boats can hold six or 700 people in them. When this one boat capsized, about seven people survived. Mm. And they survived by clinging to a fishing net in the middle of the ocean. Mm. And when the fishermen to whom these nets belonged saw these migrants clinging to their nets, instead of saving them, they actually severed their nets mm. and cast them to die in the ocean wow. depths. So Pope Francis was so moved by this that he actually flew down to this island of Lampedusa, which is only about eight square miles, right. and he celebrated Mass by the ocean harbor, not far from where they would have died. And then he used a chalice that was made from the driftwood of a refugee boat. Hmm. So one of my kind of research areas have been, I was working with the carpenter who made that chalice yeah. and tried to ask him, what were you thinking about? What does it mean to use a chalice at mass that's made from the driftwood of a refugee boat? Yeah. And so that's kind of ignited a theological imagination. And so in a nutshell, it's based on two things, that the God who left his homeland, if you will, mm -hmm. in the heavens and migrated into our sinful and broken territory, died on the cross to reconcile us to himself so that we could migrate back to our homeland. Yeah. The Eucharist is really 
closing the gap between otherness and oneness. The long vision of human life is that we're called to union and communion and reconciliation. Uh, that's a journey in itself to move towards that, and that the Eucharist celebrates our ultimate oneness. The problem with migration is that really what we have is often a polarization and a divide. Mm -hmm. And so that really separates us and alienates us and makes us aliens not only to our neighbors, but even alien to ourselves and mm -hmm. alien to God. Mm -hmm. So the Eucharist really brings out that call to communion and union. Mm. Yeah, that's a beautiful, a beautiful image. You, you talked about the heart and the longings of the heart and the heart being this place of deep knowing. And my sense is, I mean, having traveled to the border and encountered people on, on both sides of the border, that there's nothing like encountering people in challenging situations to move one's heart towards compassion, towards better understanding. So I'm curious to hear from you, what can we do as a society to, to open our hearts more to the plight and, and understanding of what certain people all around the world are going through and their, and their reasons for trying to, to migrate to different areas. Yeah, so this is not a national issue that the United States is dealing with. This is a global issue. Mm -hmm. The work here at Notre Dame has allowed me to work in different contexts around the globe on this issue of migration, not just at the U.S. border. And one of the things I've observed is this is just simply a, something that everybody is facing today, and, yeah. and yet in greater scale than we've ever faced it before. But I was very taken, and this actually happened when I was eight years old. I remember finding a pamphlet that had a very provocative question that I never forgot. It said, did you know that you could actually miss heaven by 18 inches? The head to the heart. And eventually, when I read to it, it was like the distance between the head and the heart in yeah. most people is only yeah. 18 inches. Huh. That God is not just someone to make intellectual ascent to with our minds, but someone to encounter in the depths of our heart. And if we are not able to make that migration, mm. then we would never really know God. Now, Native Americans take this further, and they say the long journey of human life is, is from the head to the heart and back to the head again. Uh -huh. and, and I could even go further than that. I'd say it's from the head to the heart to the feet and back again. Uh -huh. That migration is probably the most difficult migration to mm -hmm. make. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I was giving a talk near the Mayo Clinic at one point, and, and uh, there was a, a nurse there from the Mayo Clinic, and I talked about this image, and so she said to me, let me take this to you a little further. She says, the carotid artery actually connects the brain to the heart. Uh -huh. And she said, you need the circulation from the blood in the brain to the heart to get it oxygenated and purified so it can then recirculate back to the brain in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. So without that, you'll die of toxicity. Yeah. So, so she says, you've literally cut that off, a person will die. And that's kind of what we have become in political discourse. Mm -hmm. So this is not simply a bleeding heart issue. This yeah. ignores it simply a rational issue. Mm -hmm. We actually have to go through a deeper epistemological process to say, how do we think about this clearly, but how do we learn how to love, and what are its implications for who we are in community? Mm -hmm. That's a much deeper migration that we have to make. Yeah. And I'm not a policy guy. I'm a theologian, yeah. so I don't pretend to make policy even though what I do has deep implications for policy, mm -hmm. even though I've worked with policymakers around the world on this, mm -hmm. that's not my primary field. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to be. But mm -hmm. it still should stimulate a new imagination about who we are before God, and that should shape who we are really in community with each other. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point about the body of Christ and worshiping together, there's something very profound about people from different backgrounds and walks of life coming to the Mass and, and experiencing the Eucharist together that we realize that despite any number of differences, there's, there's a unity there. And 
that's really important to, to recognize in, in each other. And that seems to be through the eyes of the heart that, that we can see that. I'm curious about your work now. So you work in the provost's office. What does that entail? What are some of your responsibilities there? So this was not a change I anticipated uh, by any stretch. Uh, when asked really uh, you know, a year and a half ago uh, where I was with what I was doing, I said, you know, I really love what I'm doing. I love the teaching. I'm really grateful to be doing this research. I feel like, you know, this is a great setting from which to really launch into the rest of the world to sort of deal with this issue. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I was really quite happy where I was. I did not expect to change. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I would say this, that uh, my father died four years ago, and then... Uh, my mother just got married last year. Mm. And so I never would have expected my mother at 83 to get married, <laughs> yet alone to someone who's 94. Okay. So that's led me to a, a kind of emerging philosophy in life, which is the only constant in life is change. So really, this kind of migration for me is, is also changing into new spaces and new roles. But the core, I, I haven't changed at all. I mean, even though I'm doing different work, I, I don't think I really changed as a person. I don't see myself any differently. I'm still fundamentally in the service industry. So mm-hmm. everything I do is service. And whether I do so as a faculty member or an associate provost or vice president or whatever, it's service. And you know, even if it's service in different spaces and often different communities. One of the things that strikes me is just how good are the people we have that lead this place. Mm-hmm. Competent, smart, dedicated, they're hardworking, they're engaged in mission. Mm-hmm. I'm inspired by that every day. Mm-hmm. You'd think almost like you'd be a little more jaded. Yeah. The more inside you get, I actually find myself just the opposite. Huh. Is that we got really, really good people in leadership here. Mm-hmm. Every day I wake up, I'm just grateful to be working there. Mm-hmm. In that sense, there's kind of new responsibilities. I do say I've sometimes gone from being a, a cardiologist to being a hospital administrator. Okay. So I'm <laughs> still in the same hospital, yeah. still in the healing ministries, if you will. Uh, but really engaging the mission from a different perspective. And this is a big ship here mm-hmm. at Notre Dame. It's mm-hmm. an unbelievably complex place. Mm-hmm. Our reach is broad and deep, mm-hmm. and, and it's really vast in terms of what we can do. And so it's fascinating to, to really see the opportunities to lead in this space and, and also to do that with a community of people to advance this mission that's touched so many people. At the same time, we've got challenges that we're facing in our society, in our church, in our world uh, that are unparalleled. And Mm -hmm. so we need to think about it critically, thoughtfully, thoroughly, creatively, and kind of in new and imaginative ways. Three of the areas of responsibility that I've been uh, asked to to oversee, or one would be the Snipe Museum of Art, secondly, the Bartolo Performing Arts Center, Mm -hmm. and thirdly, academic advising. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, drawing from some of my previous work, but also new initiatives, would be developing a center for discernment, purpose, and mission. Mm. So in this larger space of lifelong learning, which is really an emerging area and a new area for us, is to try to figure out what can Notre Dame do that other schools, other peer schools even, are not able to do as easily, if at all. And so we can claim the space of spirituality and discernment and mission and purpose and try to say, how do we look at the deeper questions of human life and engage the issues that matter and live lives that matter? And so right now we're trying to craft out and frame the contours of that. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a big piece of my responsibility. And then then a lot of it, too, is also working in different sectors of the university to, to be an ambassador and to kind of help be a spokesperson for, for really what we do in this place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is fascinating to just look at the history of our university and how 
its influence has grown and changed over time and it's it's our globalized society but also uh, a really global footprint that Notre Dame now has I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the opportunity that you think that is and how Notre Dame has always wanted to be a force for good as we say but how it can be a force for good in on a global stage yeah, and, and I think it's uh, something that, in addition to pursuing excellence, I think we really have to keep our eyes on greatness. And greatness doesn't just make ourselves feel good. Mm-hmm. Greatness makes other people feel good. Mm-hmm. And so I think a, a continual challenge is to ask, how can we use the resources we have to really be 11 to make the world a better place? That's the hallmark of Notre Dame. To me, that's the most important metric to, to really, in the end, they look at is what kind of impact do we have on the world and how do we make that impact through our graduates and how do we really be a force for good. Be My hope and ideal is that if you were to have 10 people working for a company, uh, that if you had one of those, you say, that person's different than the other nine. Mm-hmm. What is it that's different? That there'd be something qualitatively different. Yes, they'd, have, they'd be bright, hardworking, committed, and so on, but, but they'd have a sense of, character and values and virtue. They'd have a sense of otherness, and, and they would be attentive to people who are marginalized and poor and people who are suffering, and that, that they somehow would not just care about their own advancement, but they care about advancing other people, that something of the quality of the person they are was tangibly different, they're not just smart, they're good. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is what we can really cultivate here and want to cultivate here in, in what we do. So our mission is, is immense. We have a broader palette and landscape than we've ever had before. And I think being in new spaces and having gateways, global gateways in other places, becoming more international citizens gives us an unparalleled opportunity to really engage the world, educate our students, broaden their horizons, uh, but at the same time pay attention to the deepest challenges facing the world today. And I think as a Catholic university, we have to continue to ask what are the major questions facing the planet right now and the human beings? How can we direct our resources and our energies to that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, very weighty and, and important things. You also are part of the Board of Trustees and a university fellow. Can you give us some insight into those conversations and what are the important principles uh, by which those uh, groups operate and, and what are the, some of the big decisions that, that you all discuss in those, in those contexts? I think, again, I'm new to the Board of Trustees. I've only been on it a year. But again, same thing as I said before, one of the things that's been really inspiring to me is how many good people we have on the Board of Trustees Mm -hmm. and the Board of Fellows, people who are uh, really, really committed to this place being Catholic, really committed to this place being engaged in mission, and also this place never resting on its laurels, Mm -hmm. whether it be with its endowments or its programs or whatever else it is, that there's a commitment to always getting better. I think... That, to me, has been really one of the most dominant pieces to come across, is just constantly striving to get better and better and better. And so I think, you know, there's a lot of issues that, uh, that do face us today about the inequities or inequalities in the world mm-hmm. that are going on today. I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches here, but that doesn't mean that actually this is just meant for ourselves alone. So what does this mean in terms of making sure that we're making opportunities available for lesser-resourced areas and students who otherwise would never be able to afford that. I mean, Mm -hmm. to really commit our priorities to not just making the rich richer, but also kind of trying to help lift up those who are lowly. I mean, if you look at the Magnificat of Mary, this kind of gives us a lot of insight into praising God, lifting up the lowly, filling the hungry with good things, Mm -hmm. ultimately living our lives as a sacrament of God. 
Yeah, and I know in my own story and the story of so many people who have graduated from this place that it has been a life-changing experience, that your life is never the same. Uh, You're convicted in a way to go out and and try and be that force for good in, in whatever area of walk of life, but there's a deep sense of gratitude and appreciation, I think, for a lot of people who encounter this place and then a desire to to pay that forward. We do like to talk about holiness and some of the models of holiness for you and the ways that, although we all do it imperfectly, the way that, that you're trying in your life to strive after holiness. So could you tell us, as you think back over the course of your life to this point, who have been some of your uh, true models of holiness, and what are some of the principles by which you try and live to to seek after that? I have to say that in a word, if I had to summarize my life, and it really kind of revolves around the heart of Christ for yeah. me. And to me, that became clear somewhere around the middle of my formation that all of my deepest longings find their resonance and their home and their integration ultimately within the heart of God. To me, the heart of Christ is the is basically the source and the fulfillment of well, longing and desire. And so, to me, my every day my life comes back to that. I have a ritual that I, the first act of the day and the last act of the day uh, are to renew my vows. Hmm. And my vows uh, are not just the reiteration of the formula that I used when I made my perpetual vows. They're actually a distillation of central truths that are, have been revealed to me over the last. 35 years or so that I've been in religious life. So they're just simple truth statements to me that are kind of like, yeah, if I'm not true to this, I'm not actually true to my core. So that is a very personal thing and elementary thing, but to me it it flows out of the heart of God and flows out of the heart of Christ. So if I had to say what is my life in one word, it would be through an icon that I have that I pray with every morning, which is an icon of the heart of Christ that I had painted when I was in Chile in 1991. Hmm. But there's people along the way who really shape that, and I think I first learned that from my mother and from my parents. Uh, they taught me how to love, and they still do, whether they're still here with us or not. So my mother uh, was a great inspiration of faith and, and is a very generous and loving person, so she really taught me how to love. But I also can think of a lot of people in the Holy Cross community who taught me also what it meant to teach or what it meant to serve or what it meant to sort of pay attention to the poor and to serve that their needs and also how to keep your mind and your heart in the bigger picture. There's a great series of people here at Notre Dame who have also kind of taught me about education and taught me about wisdom and taught me about learning and the heart's desire and other things. But some of the people in the larger pantheon, you know, for me are people like Ignatius of Loyola, the mm-hmm. Holy Cross priest. Ignatius taught me a lot about discernment yeah. and still does. Teresa of Avila taught me a lot about the spiritual life in the interior castle. Teresa of Lisieux taught me about loving God in little ways through little things. Mm-hmm. And St. Francis is always the love of God in creation, the love of God in the most vulnerable. So these are some of my inspirations. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oscar Romero, I think, has been a more contemporary version of that. And in the place where he died in El Salvador at the mass or at the church where he was assassinated, in his bedroom, which is just a kind of a block away, there's a series of artifacts that are from when he lived there, but there's a, also at the top of one of the ceilings, there's a series of inscriptions of different sayings of his, and one of them that really has struck me is it just says in Spanish, it says, my life has been a poem of the love of God, and he has accomplished in me that which he wanted. 
that's a great way to really understand your life Mm -hmm. and seeing that if our own lives can make visible the invisible love of God, then we will have lived the life that God has called us to. (laughs) That's a good goal for sure. I am curious about this aspect of lifelong learning. So that was an emerging area in the university and you've been working with the Inspired Leadership Initiative. What have been some of the principles that guide this desire for the university to be involved in lifelong learning and and how has that started to to serve those who are taking part in it? I think it's a bit like the way we educate people uh, in terms of religion and Catholic faith. Uh, we do a great job in the younger years, but then it kind of drops off and yeah. just people are never continue. <laughs> you graduated. Uh, you know, a lot of people, their faith kind of ends at the level of where they ended in sixth grade or yeah. high school. Or Got confirmed, yeah, yeah. At some point, life gives you kind of bigger challenges and right. you need an adult faith to deal with kind yeah. of adult questions. <laughs> so one of the entry points for me, I also direct a small program called the Global Leadership Program. Mm-hmm. And some of that has, has been used to really do some of the foundational work into this Center for Discernment, Purpose, and Mission. What we do in the Global Leadership Program is you try to ask, what are the questions that people are asking? What are the themes related to those questions? What are the pedagogies we can develop that help people deal with those themes? And what are the programs that can help deliver those pedagogies? Those are some of the things that have guided us in terms of creating this space. So we're trying to, we don't really want to spend time answering questions that no one's asking. Yeah. But when you think about it, after people finish their master's degree, undergraduate master's or doctoral degrees, you know, they often don't have any formal chance to learn. I mean, they might have some continuing education, but you know, there's a lot of learning that needs to happen. And I often hear people say, like, gosh, can you teach me about being a good parent? Yeah. Can you teach me about how to take care of my dying parents? Yeah. Can you teach me about really how I find meaning at work? There's all kinds of spaces about wellness and well-being as well that are kind of factor into that. Right now, we're at a time where I feel like we've recognized we need to do this. A lot of universities are taking up this challenge, recognize lifelong learning, that you wouldn't just come here as undergrad, but you'd come here from undergraduate till when you died. Mm -hmm. But to do that, it's a bit like when I was an undergrad, sort of the town ended at University Park Mall and you had Granger, and Granger was just a series of (laughs) cornfields. Now it's a huge commercial shopping center and everything. You've been back to campus. People know that there's a lot lot more going on in that area than there was 30 years ago. But it's sort of like we've bought this big piece of land we call Granger, but it hasn't been zoned yet, Hmm. and it hasn't really been kind of partitioned out yet, and we don't really know how we're going to develop this space yet. When it comes to discernment, purpose, and mission, it's hard to know whether this is just going to be like a St. Joe hospital in the middle of that Granger property that's going to animate everything and things will grow up around that, Uh or whether it's going to be a clinic at the side of University Park Mall where people can come to find, you know, some some healing remedies, but it's one among other kind of things being offered in the whole area. Yeah. Great to hear. And I think even some things we're doing here at the Alumni Association with our Think ND, which is a counterpart to Faith ND, there's acknowledgement of a desire of people to to continue learning and, and to try and be responsive to that is important. You said over the course of this interview that I never expected this to happen in this way, and there were some or some, some change of course that you couldn't have anticipated, but it seems that your heart has been open to those changes, and you've gone along with them even before you fully understood why they were happening or what they meant. Is there a technique or, or something you can share with us to adopt that sense of openness to God's call, even when it comes in unexpected ways? 
I think it hinges really on one thing and one thing only, and that is surrender. Hmm. And I remember years ago, I used to work in a wilderness camp in southwest Colorado, and they taught me how to repel. And growing up in New Jersey, I didn't have a lot of experience with it. <laughs> so they led me to the top of a high mountain, and they showed me all the kingdoms of the world, and they said you could have—no, it was, that was a different one. So— um, they actually led me to the edge of a cliff, and then, you know, through a series of events, you kind of put this harness on you, this nylon webbing, and then you kind of had this figure eight thing that this rope went around your back. And paradoxically, when you were on the cliff and you kind of let go of the rope, the figure eight through the friction held you in place. Hmm. And then when you held onto the rope, you fell. So it was counterintuitive. Yeah. Now, faith is like that. And to me, the heart of it, I didn't get to these spaces of being a priest or any of the other things I'm doing by having a well-worked-out plan in advance and executing it. If I got into it at all, it's because it was came through trust and surrender. It all hinges on letting go of the rope and actually trusting that God will lead you to where you want. And let me just say, there was a lot of times it didn't make any sense at all, mm-hmm. and I knew I was kind of just walking in darkness before mm-hmm. anything became clear. I think biblical faith is the decision of saying yes in the context of no, when everything inside is saying no, mm. and it's a choice of yes in the midst of I don't know. And to me, that's where faith really uh, comes through is, is not when it's clear and it's certain. In fact, uh, Bernard Lodergan used to say that there's two kinds of people in the world. There's those who need certainty and those who seek understanding. Mm. You know, And I think that in many ways, what I'm doing, it feels aligned with my deepest self, but it's if I've come to any sense of that, it's been through that path of surrender. Never perfect, never easy, never clear often. Mm-hmm. Yet in that surrendering, things have become clear. Insight has come, and the Lord has led the way, and often through other people that he's put into my life that I never even could have anticipated would ever be there. John Dunn used to say, people love a John Dunn That's professor right. <laughs> here, he used to say that the worst thing that can happen is not that your plans don't work out, He says, the worst thing that happens is your plans do. Mm. He says, because God's plans for you are so much bigger than you could ask for or imagine Mm -hmm. that it's surrendering into those, to that plan, which is really what Mary did. I mean, in some sense, on the dome, it boils down to, you know, let your will be done, let it be done to me according to your will. In fact, I've often thought that the physical campus of Notre Dame reveals a spiritual geography. Mm. And that if you look at Mary's yes is really what we celebrate on the dome, and that is the surrender to God and trust and faith that sure. God will accomplish in her and us what he wants to do with yeah. us. But next to that is the uh, the way that that faith comes through to us is through the church of the Sacred Heart, which is the sacramentality of Catholic vision. Is that The sacraments are a window into the sacred, mm-hmm. and they're not limited only to the seven sacraments mm-hmm. either. That's God comes through experiences, and God through, comes through many different ways to us. We celebrate those seven in particular, to having a sacramental worldview of the way God comes to us. The Word of Life mural in front of the library is that that Jesus is the incarnate Word. He is the Word of Life. He actually is the embodiment of the wisdom of God, and all the generations kind of testify to that. All of that should lead us to the grotto, which is really where light shines in the darkness, and the Mm -hmm. darkness does not overcome it. Mm -hmm. And in that darkness, it should lead us to the log cabin, where the original missionaries came in the light of faith to to actually 
be it people of mission, but particularly to those who are most marginalized, in mm-hmm. this case, the Native Americans of this community. Mm-hmm. But then it comes around to the sacred heart in front of the dome, which animates everything. Mm-hmm. So it's the love of God, which animates everything. Mm-hmm. And so our life of faith really is animated by the fiat of Mary, sacraments of the church, ultimately gives expression to the word of God and Jesus, which calls us to faith in him, even amidst the darkness. That faith calls us into mission, but that mission is animated by love. Mm-hmm. That's a, a beautiful sentiment, and it reminds me of the blessing that we have of walking the grounds of this campus and trying to share its mission and beauty with people all, all around the world. Well, Father Dan, I just want to thank you for expressing, I think, your own heart in, in telling us your story, and I really resonate with your description of the heart of Jesus being at the core of your ministry and who you are. I think that really shows in, in the work that you do and, and the way that you are part of guiding this, this institution to its next place that, that God has in store for us. And so just want to thank you for all you do and for spending a little bit of time with our audience today. Thanks so much, Dan. Great to be with you. Great. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith in D podcast. We always remind you that you can sign up for our daily gospel reflection at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. There we will release new episodes of this podcast as well as accompany you each day as we reflect on the gospel. Until next time, we will keep you in our prayers. Mm-hmm.